for the confidence that we do have that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this morning as we worship, we are drawn into your presence. We're drawn into your holy presence. God, you are holy. You are almighty. You're just. You're loving. And your arms are open wide to receive us right into your presence, right into your worship this morning. And so we celebrate you. And God, as we, as we think about the greatness that you are, the righteous God that you are, the holy God that you are, we're convicted of our sin, our unholiness, the ways that we run away from you. And God, we want to just bow before you this morning. We want to repent of any sin that we've committed. We confess our sin and know that you are faithful and you're just and you will forgive us of our sin. And you will put us in a position in Christ Jesus to live this moment in your presence. And I pray, God, that you'll do that work in our heart today. Thank you for calling us to you. Thank you for allowing us to worship you through singing and through prayer. And now as we open your word through the power of your word. And I pray that we'll make these next few minutes all about you. All about honoring you with our lives, honoring you with our thoughts. Honoring you with the freedom to speak into our life and convict us and cleanse us and make us more and more and more like Jesus, even as we worship here today. In Jesus' name, now we continue to worship. Amen. Two things right now, if you're a child and you want to run on back to the front to your place of worship, there are leaders back there ready to meet you and greet you and, and continue with your worship. And for the rest of us, I... I encourage you to open your Bible with us to Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5. We're going to continue our journey today uh, that we started in January through the, the, the book of Esther. And I'm going to read aloud beginning with verse 1 of chapter 5. And you follow along with me either from your open scripture, which I hope and pray that you'll follow along as we move through the service today, or the words will be on the screen as well. Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight and he held out, his, he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? 
it shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and to fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast and I will prepare, that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Jerish and his friend said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. We have a few missionaries connected to our church who are serving in places so hostile toward the gospel that I can't even publicly name them or name the place where they are serving without jeopardizing their lives. We also have a couple of our missionaries who are members of our church in our church today who will be going back in a couple of weeks to Zambia. Missionaries are a special breed called by God to do His service on this earth. And many of these missionaries are taking the gospel into enemy territory. So it's very important that we pray for these champions. It was so encouraging this week when when one of these young men in a really hard place sent me a text message. And he asked me in the message how he could pray for our church. It said a lot about his life. Uh, It's important to trust God when everything's going great, when all the bills are current and the kids are sleeping through the night and everyone is healthy and life is comfortable. Most often, however, we're shaken out of that dream world into reality when crisis hits. And crisis screams to us that we need help, that we need God. Our missionary friends in hard places know that their strength and their help comes from God. And in their wisdom, they live with a prayerful attitude that keeps them in constant touch with God. They trust God. For life. And it should be no different from, for every single one of us as well. Our nation was 
drawn into crisis. Some of you who are over 30 years old remember very well where you were when on September 11, 2001, two planes crashed into the Twin Towers in New York City and another plane crashed into the portion of the Pentagon and another plane crashed into the field in Pennsylvania that supposedly was headed for our White House. Our nation saw a glimpse of turning back to God immediately following those terrorist attacks on September the 11th, 2001. We were in crisis. We needed God. And for a short brief time, most of our part of the world turned back to acknowledging that we needed God. Well, over these past few weeks, we've journeyed through Esther, and we've discovered that crisis is a way that God opens the opportunity for us to turn to Him and ask Him for help in the middle of that crisis. We, we've learned that we, we need to ask God for direction in the middle of crisis. In Esther chapter 1, King Ahasuerus pridefully threw a party and then another party, both which lasted for over six months of a year. And then at the conclusion of that second banquet, that second party, he divorced his wife because she wouldn't expose herself to his drunken friends. Then in chapter 2 of Esther, we saw where God providentially chose Esther to be the new queen. In chapter 3, we're introduced to Satan's partners, Haman, who was promoted to the king's right-hand man, and then he crafted a plan to have every Jew on planet Earth killed. Then last week in, in chapter 4, we saw a dialogue between Mordecai, Esther's cousin, uh, and Esther about what to do in light of the, uh, the edict that had been proclaimed to have every Jew killed. And we find that Mordecai was called on by Esther to call a three-day fast over all of the people of Israel in Susa. And she would join them in that fast. Biblical fasting, we said, is calling on God for help. And God's people humbled themselves and called on God for help at the end of chapter 4. And that leads us today. See, most often we are shaken out of our dream world when crisis hits. And crisis screams to us that we need God. So as we pick up here today, I pray that you will join me in looking for principles that, that we can apply to our life to humble ourselves before God and trust Him to give us wisdom and courage in the middle of every crisis that we will face even for the rest of our life. See, you can make a difference in trusting God's wisdom over the folly of this world. And that's where we're called to follow in our journey in Esther chapter 5 today. So how should we trust God? How should we trust God? Three ways. First of all, we should trust God with our actions. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that Esther's perspective was a perspective of putting her trust in God. She had spent the past three days fasting. 
She was confident that she was operating not in her own physical strength, but in God's strength, in God's supernatural strength. Think about going without food or water for three days. You don't have any strength. And yet, spiritually, she was on a high. She had God's strength. Her, she had God's supernatural strength. But now the fast was over. It was time to break the fast and to move into action. So, first of all, she thoughtfully had just designed a plan to dress like the queen. She came out of her mourning clothes, out of her sackcloth and ashes, and she presented herself as the queen. It's interesting. She had not seen the queen or the king for 33 days. Remember in the earlier chapter we saw where for 30 days she had not seen the king? That was her excuse that she first gave to Mordecai for going before the king, risking her life to go before the king. Three more days she was fasting. 33 days she had not seen the king. And look at what the Bible says. When he saw her standing in the courtyard, just in his sight, he was blown away with her appearance. She went far enough into the courtyard to have his line of sight without running into his presence, without being invited, which would have meant death for her. On the inside, she must have been just dying. She had to be anxious at the threat of death for her people and for herself. And she was grieving, the Bible had told us in chapter 4. But on the outside, she moved with grace and confidence with God's supernatural strength. Where did she get that strength from? Well, she got that strength from falling on her face before God for three days and fasting. What does that say about our life today? How often are we willing to sacrifice enough time and energy and food to just Lay in the presence of God and let Him give us our strength. Well, when the king saw her, his jaw dropped. <laughs> and he held out the golden scepter for her to come into his presence. So her first fear must have begun to subside. And in crisis, you and I are responsible to seek God and make plans and then take action that flow from what Wisdom God gives us in the plans that He gives us. Fasting and praying over major decisions and over reactions. Open doors for us to operate within God's supernatural power. Have you experienced that? I trust and pray that you have experienced that. In Acts chapter 2, the early church, the first church, responded to the crisis that they had endured where they had seen Jesus hang on the cross and be killed. And then on the third day, they saw that God raised Him from the dead. He, he was living with resurrection power and for 40 days He poured life into them. And then He said, I want you to wait now until the Holy Spirit comes. I want you to fast and pray and wait. That's what waiting means. And then what happened? When God poured out His Spirit on them in Acts chapter 1, power from God fell. Amazing. The same Spirit that was with Esther and Mordecai in making their decision to stand for God in crisis times, 
was alive in the first century. And guess what? That same spirit is alive today through the church. Every Wednesday morning, right here in this room at 6.30, we gather together and we pray for God's spirit and God's power to fall upon this place and upon our country and upon our world. Every Monday morning, for a couple of hours, our staff comes together and we do Bible study and prayer. And we pray for God to give us the open heart and open mind and means by which to share the gospel in this church and in our community. See, actions follow preparation, as Esther exhibited for us. It was time for prayer to take action, and so she approached the king, and she was prepared. And when she wisely approached the king and touched the tip of his scepter, it was a matter of etiquette in that culture. She knew that that was the way that she could make her request before the king to have the edict to destroy all Jews changed. This was very different from what happened with Mordecai when every time he saw Haman, he refused to bow down to Haman. For, for Mordecai to bow down to Haman would mean that he was honoring some other god. There's a big difference in operating within cultural practices like Esther was doing and violating religious conscience, which Mordecai was doing. We should never knowingly Affirm anything that is contrary to the truth of God's Word. Never, never compromise God's Word. We should appropriately refuse to bow to affirming issues like at-will abortion or homosexual marriage and other gender issues or Christian nationalism even or violating the Lord's Day. And on and on. Last week we talked about having our standard as the Ten Commandments. They have not changed and they will not change because they represent the heart of God for our lives and for the world. On the other hand, Mordecai would have been violating the first commandment by bowing down and worshiping Haman like Haman wanted him to do. And so he boldly refused. Esther had no problem, though, touching the tip of that scepter without violating her conscience to put no other gods before Yahweh, before God. So verses 3 and 4 then, uh, look at it. She had the king's undivided attention. She had him captured. And when asked what she wanted, she was wise in answering the king's question. Look at it. She said, if it please the king. <laughs> she was buttering him up. <laughs> she knew that she had the opportunity to put him there on the platter instead of her being on the platter. And so she, she appealed to his vanity. She said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So in chapter one of this book, we learn that the king liked three things. He liked food, he liked wine, and he liked to have his own way. <laughs> Without exception, he had to have those three things. And in the process of her three-day fast, Esther prepared that feast for the king depending on strength that she had from God. Now think about that. Think about going three days without any food and water. And in the process of those three days, preparing a banquet fit for a king. 
that took determination for her. It took fortitude for her to be able to smell the smells of that delicious food and not focus on that, not focus on her stomach, but rather focus on what God was saying to her to give her His wisdom and His strength. So she used her wisdom from God by patiently inviting the king and Haman to that feast. She captured the king's curiosity. And then in verse 5, the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. She was prepared. She was patient. She was prudent. She was brave. She was wise. All of these qualities came to Esther and were reinforced to Esther because she spent time with God, focusing on God even in the middle of this awesome crisis that she was facing. So after the king and Haman had filled their bellies with the best food, the king's food, they began to drink. And again, she pretty much knew she had them in her hand when they began to drink, because they didn't just take a sip or two. They were getting toasted. If you read chapter 1, you'll see how much they love to drink. And so the king asked Esther again, what do you want? And in verses 7 and 8, again, Esther demonstrated her patient wisdom. She was able to know here that if the king and Haman came to the banquet the next day, she was guaranteed based on their honor that her request was going to be fulfilled. She was guaranteed. They were obligated just like Esther, we should never react to crisis or any important decision that we make as far as that goes without prayerfully thinking through our actions and crafting a God-ordered plan like Esther did. I know there's some people in our church circle, maybe some of you here today, who are operating in crisis mode in, in your life. I'd like to encourage our church members, before you give advice to anybody, especially when they're in the middle of a crisis, make sure that what you share with them, the advice that you give them, is consistent with God's truth and is consistent with time that you've spent praying to God for them. Esther was that brave. She was that wise. Over, over the past 16 years, I've, I've been blown away at how generous this church has been in meeting every need that we've known about, both here and around the world. You, you've, way to go. I mean, God has used you in a powerful way to take the gospel, to share with people that some that you know, and some that you will never know until you get to heaven. You've been generous. You've been faithful. You've been generous with your, with your time and with your resources, with your ministries, with your money. And again, I applaud that, but prayerfully, we must not back up. We must not look back. We must look forward and continue to grow in the way we use our resources like Esther did 
Everything from the way we present ourselves in public to the way we ask God to use us to share the gospel with our friends and with our neighbors and resource other people to share the gospel around the world. In a crisis, it's easy to fall into the trap of making foolish decisions. So be patient like Esther when facing a crisis and keep your trust in the providence of God. Be willing to say that I'm making a godly decision and if I perish, I perish. Like Paul said, I'll wake up on the other side and I'll be in heaven. I'll be in heaven. When you believe that as Romans 8 says, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. When you believe that, it turns every crisis that you face into an opportunity to give glory to God. And that's what we want in our lives. That's the victory that we want in our lives. And so, the invisible hand of God is at work. He was at work in Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Asherah. He was at work in all their lives to bring about His will, to bring about His plan. And God is at work in our world today, just the same. How is He at work in our world today? A lot of the way He's at work in our world today is through the church, through you through working in your life to reach out to those who need salvation, who need the gospel. He's working to use you, working through you to bring people out of crisis into life with Him. So trust God to lead your actions to make a difference today in this world. Secondly, how else should we trust God? Well, we should trust God in enemy territory. Look at verse 9 and 10. Verse 9 and 10 tell us that one moment Haman was walking away from this banquet. He was on top of the world. He was joyful, the Bible says. He was glad of heart. On top of the world, looking down on creation. I mean, he was on top of the world. He was. Mordecai was sitting at the courtyard gate in enemy territory. He knew he was in enemy territory. And it would have been really easy when Haman came strutting by for him to fall down and worship him, which is what Haman wanted him to do. But the Bible says he did not bow to Haman. He did not bow to the ways of this world. Neither should you and I ever bow to the ways of this world. So when Haman saw that Mordecai failed to bow down to him and worship him, what does the Bible say? Haman completely lost his joy. He completely lost his joy. His joy was replaced, the Bible says, with wrath toward Mordecai. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I was in a shopping center. I'm, I'm not a real big shopper, but... You know, I'd, I'd be at a big box store or a grocery store and, and I would see somebody at the other end of the aisle who had offended me or maybe somebody I just didn't like, you know. Not any of you, but I mean, maybe somebody that I, I didn't like. 
And I would turn and go the other way and go down. I didn't even need anything in the other aisles, but I would go the other way to keep from seeing that person. What did that do to me? What does that do to you when something like that happens? Well, you lose your joy. <laughs> I mean, I'm joyfully looking forward to shopping and, you know, satisfying myself and that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, joy is out the window. That's what happened to Haman. He lost his joy, pride and arrogance and anger. Never mix well together. In fact, pride and arrogance and anger are the formula for an explosion that almost always kills our joy. Kills our joy. Think about Esther and Mordecai though. Through humbling themselves and fasting, they were full of God's wisdom. And even in the midst of the crisis, it's apparent that they were filled with some spirit that was greater than the terror that they were facing. That's what joy is. There's a big difference in joy and, and happiness. And through his pride and arrogance, Haman was only thinking about the God that he had made himself to be. So look at verse 10. Verse 10 tells us that to feel better about himself, what did he do? Well, he restrained himself and then gathered a few friends, including his wife, Zeresh, to tell them how great he was. <laughs> he bragged about his wealth. Look at it. He bragged about his family. He bragged about his position. He even bragged about getting to die a second time with only the king and the queen. He was full of himself. Uh, I read an article this week about the signs of a self-centered person. You know you're a self-centered person when you dominate conversations. You, nobody can say anything that you don't have anything better to say. <laughs> you one-up them all the way in every conversation. You know you are a self-centered person when you lack empathy for other people. Somebody might be hurting in severe pain. And you say, well, look at what happened to me. And you got to go deeper and farther than they, you can't empathize with other people. You know you're a self-centered person when you take more than you give. You know you're a self-centered person when you want things to be done your way and only your way. You know you're a self-centered person when you're quick to blame others and never ever take responsibility for your own actions. You know you're a self-centered person when you always want to be the center of attention. And that's exactly where Haman was. Don't be like Haman. Don't be self-centered. In some ways, we all struggle with being a little bit self-centered. I say that because that's at the heart of sin. Sin says, I want my way rather than God's way. I don't care what God says. I'm going to do life my way. That's sin. That's the root of sin. So we all have that root. The Bible says all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. And we're all tempted to fall into that rut and be like Haman. But don't be self-centered. Don't be like Haman. Be humble and repentant and be willing to confess your sin. The Bible says in 1 Samuel to... Fall on our knees and repent if my people who are called by my name 
humble themselves, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will what? Heal their land. That's what we need today. We need humble people, repentant people, not people who are full of ourselves and self-centered. And that's why verse 13 tells us the deeper, deeper story of Haman. Verse 13. Yet all of this, after bragging about all he had and all he was and puffing out his chest, he said, yet, yet all of this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. As long as there was one person who would not worship him and bow down to him, Haman couldn't be happy. He had real worldly power. He did. He had real power. He had the power to look at the king in the face and say, here's a plan I think you would enjoy. Let's kill every Jew on the face of the earth and get rid of people that worship different than we worship. He had the power to do that. And he used that power. Esther, on the other hand, was wise and patient and kept her trust in God. The thought of eradicating the people of God broke her heart. And it gave her courage to go stand before a king who could wipe her life out just like that. There are many types, and we're going to see this in the next three or four weeks. We're going to see this very clearly. There are many types of Jesus in the story of Esther. We call that typology. Typology. Um, this is one great example of that. Remember, Esther's heart was broken over her people, over the thought of her people perishing. In Mark chapter 10, we learn that Jesus was on His way to be crucified. He knew He was going to be crucified. And what was His heart broken over? His heart was broken over your sin. And my sin. And the sins of the whole world. And so Mark chapter 10, down around verse 42, the Bible tells us that Jesus was going to Jerusalem for the last time. He knew He would, would be there until He died on the cross. And yet the Bible says that He ran ahead. He, he, he was way ahead of His disciples. They were murmuring, deciding whether they really even wanted to go to Jerusalem or not and risk their life. Because He had been run out of there so many times. Jesus was running toward the cross. Running toward death and agony. Because He loves you and me so much. Well, Esther was wise and patient. And Haman was prideful and impatient. His malice toward Mordecai had led him to completely lose his joy. And Mordecai knew what he was against. But he trusted God in enemy territory. He was in enemy territory, but he trusted God there. Whether you know it or not, today you are in enemy territory. The Bible tells us that this world is... Controlled by the prince of the power of the air. Controlled by Satan himself to the degree that God allows him to be in control. Our missionaries in hard places are not the only ones who are in enemy territory. You're in enemy territory every day. There are people sitting here today, most likely, who are letting Satan tell you that 
you're no good. You can never be used by God. And that's enemy territory. The enemy territory between your ears, in your mind, is real. And that's where Satan likes to do his best work with how you think, what you put in your mind and what you think about in your mind. Remember when, when Moses was standing at the burning bush and God was telling him he was to go and, and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. Moses said, I, 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 I stutter, I, I can't speak. He said, I can't do it. And yet God, when he trusted God, God showed him how powerful he was. Remember David as he stood before the giant. He stood before the giant and he had just heard his brothers put him down and say, Oh, you little runt, you're just out here to build up your ego. Go back home and take care of the sheep that you're supposed to be taken care of. Those voices were ringing in his mind. And David listened to a greater voice in his heart. And he stood before the giant and he took his little sling and he put one rock right between uh, Goliath's forehead and took him down. Simon Peter. Simon Peter was that disciple of Jesus who was so quick-tempered, quick, to, quick, quick to, to, to fight back. And they were in the middle of a storm. He was scared to death. And Jesus looked at him and said, Step out of the boat and walk on the water to me. And Simon Peter stepped out of the boat and started walking toward Jesus. And then, like most of us, he started looking around at the circumstances, at the wind and the waves, and he started to sink. And Jesus had to pull him up. That same Peter sat in the courtyard the night that Jesus was tried, illegally tried, the day before he was crucified. Simon Peter caught Jesus' eye on the third time that Simon Peter had denied Jesus. The voices in his head, I'm sure, were saying to him, you're no good, you're not qualified to represent me. And then a few weeks later, after Jesus had died and then been raised from the dead, Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said, feed my sheep. Jesus restored him. The voices in his head were saying, no, you can't do that. The voice in his heart said, I'm listening to Jesus. And he spent the rest of his life faithfully, faithfully, standing boldly on the truth of Jesus. The enemy of God is the prince of this world. We live in enemy territory. And the enemy is filling your, your, your mind with lies to draw you away from God rather than the voice of God calling you to repent and turn to Him and be forgiven and let Him use you to be a great testimony in this world. The music group Casting Crowns did a great job and they got it right when they wrote this little course. It says, the voice of truth tells me a different story. The voice of truth says, do not be afraid. The voice of truth says, this is for my glory. Out of all the voices calling out to me, I will choose to listen and believe the voice of truth. And I want to challenge you and myself today to listen to the voice of Jesus in our heart rather than the voice of enemy territory that's calling out to us to turn away from God, to tell us that we're no good. You could be drawn to enemy territory today in so many ways. Through pornography, 
scrolling mindlessly social media for hours and hours wasting time, staring at a TV screen wasting time, obsessing over the idol you've made yourself to be. I mean, there's so many ways you can be drawn into enemy territory. So be aware that enemy territory is real and it's dangerous. But you can be like Mordecai and not bow down to the magnetic pull of enemy territory. I encourage you to join me today and call on God. Trust Him in enemy territory. Then there's one last thing. Trust God with our actions. Trust God in enemy territory. And finally this morning, one more place we should trust God. We should trust God over worldly wisdom. This is important. Verse 14. Then his wife Jerish and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Mm. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman had three strikes against him. Pride and anger, and bad friends. Terrible friends, horrible friends. We've talked about the pride, we've talked about the anger, but bad friends. I want to challenge you today that, you know, the the church has many benefits. God's church. Jesus instituted the church. Part of the reason Jesus instituted the church was to put us around like-minded people of the, of the same faith, to encourage one another, to build one another up, to use the influence that we have to sharpen each other, one another, as iron sharpens iron. Friends who are humble, wise, patient, brave, willing to sacrifice like Esther are part of the benefits of being part of God's church. Haman took the advice of fools. And that advice led to his folly and his ruin, we'll learn later. Imagine having friends who recommend that you build a 75-foot platform to display murdering someone and then hang them on it and then go happily to dinner, (laughs) happily to a a banquet prepared by the queen. Imagine having friends like that. That's what pride does. Pride blinds a person to truth and reality. Pride and anger and bad friends destroy you. Haman was consumed with his hatred. I mean, I can't even imagine hating someone so much for them not worshiping you, that you kill them. Well, this is the perfect example of what happens when we live for ourselves, wanting the world to bow down to us. So Haman was controlled by the very person he despised. And that's the way hate works. The appetite of hate is never satisfied. I mean, remember... Haman had already taught the king into an edict where all Jews, including Mordecai, were going to be killed anyway. 
He had immediate gratification, though, and that's what drives much of our world today. We want what we want. We want it now. But remember, God, God has His sovereign purposes behind every wise person and every foolish person. Haman was a type of how God uses even evil-minded people, unwise people, for His purposes. 500 years after Haman, God used the pride of foolish people to bring His wrath and judgment on His own Son, Jesus. Because He loves you and me that much. Like Esther, Jesus was humble. He was wise. He was innocent. But He was crucified and sacrificed His life for your sins and my sin. And everyone who trusts in Him and repents of our prideful sin against God are forgiven. Every person is forgiven when they trust Jesus to pay the price for our sins. You can come into the presence of the King of Kings today and you can bow before the one who suffered on the cross for you. Over our lifetime, you and I have built a gallows to hang ourselves on with our lifetime of sin. And by God's grace and through God's gift of faith alone, we can be transformed from being prideful Haman into being a humble servant like Jesus and like Esther forecasted. I encourage you today to put your trust in Jesus, the God of Esther. So here's the question I want you to go home and think about today and talk about in your small groups and in your family and parents with your children. They have the same question. How does the cross lead us to trust God? Well, it begins by trusting God and humbling ourselves to trust God's gift of salvation through Jesus. Have you done that? Have you repented of your sin? Humbly bowed before God and asked Him to forgive you of your sin and trusted Jesus as your Savior? That's what God leads us to when we trust Him. And how He leads us to His very heart. To a heart of forgiveness. It includes trusting God to help you overcome pride and arrogance that leads you to believe that you're the center of the universe. It includes trusting God to connect you with godly people in His church who will give you biblical wisdom rather than the wisdom of this world. 9-11 and COVID-19 are not the greatest crises this world has ever faced. We talked about this last week. Uh, the greatest crisis this world faces today is dying without Jesus. And God has put us in a place for such a time as this to share Jesus and the hope of salvation, the hope of the world with our lost and dying world. I want, to, I want us to be like our missionaries in hard places who go deeper each day into connecting with God. I want us to learn to use every crisis that we have through the power of the cross and the resurrection as an opportunity 
to share the life-changing message of Jesus Christ with those who watch us faithfully cling to God and trust God in the midst of our crisis and major decisions that we make. God's plan is to use you, a believer in Jesus Christ, to use crisis in your life as an opportunity to give glory to Him. And we'll pick up right there next week. Let's pray together. God, thank you. Thank you for the boldness, the wisdom, the patience, the faith, the confidence, the preparation, the prayer that Esther had in dealing with the crisis before her. And God, how I pray today that not a single person will leave here without Jesus today because the Savior of the world is, is Jesus. And he came to this world and lived a perfect life and sacrificed his life to die in our place to offer us salvation. And I pray that not one person will continue in the way of the world today, but totally sell out to Jesus and say, God, I admit that I'm a sinner and I repent of my sin and I humbly bow before you and ask you to take my life and use it to glorify you for the rest of my life. God, I pray that that would be the prayer of every single one of us here today. Take us and use us for your glory because God, we do need you. We need you. And I pray that we'll be willing to admit that today as we give our life to you in Jesus' name.